Well, this morning we are going to look at the, the life of Martin Luther, really from the viewpoint of seeing what God, some of the things which God did in his life in order to exalt our Lord and, and our God this morning. Luther's famous words, here I stand, is really the, the idea that we want to look at. Uh, really, this is, serves as a bit of an introduction to God's work in and through Martin Luther. And I signed up for this last week, and then I started into it, and I was like, what have I done? You, you know, to, to look at Martin Luther's life um, in, in simply an hour is, a, is an impossible task. Um, and I have relied heavily upon uh, uh, Roland Baton's uh, history. He's one of the most uh, famous biographies of Luther, and as well as uh, R.C. Sproul's teaching on this, uh, greatly benefited from that. So today is October 31st. And when you think of October 31st, what do you, what do you think of? What ideas come into your mind? As a kid, it was about dress-ups. It was a time for candy. And uh, what kid doesn't like to dress up and um, enjoy some candy? We didn't always participate because my parents became believers when I was a young, young age. But it was always fun to dress up and share a little candy. And yet as I've got, uh, gotten older, uh, October 31st has become a day that I hate and I love. I hate what the world has made it. A day of celebration of evil. A day where people spend lots of money to decorate their houses with skeletons and goblins and devils uh, in celebration of everything that God hates. But I love October 31st for another reason. Because it's on that day, 504 years ago, that Martin Luther put his 95 theses on the door of the, of the castle church in Wittenberg and ignited, unbeknownst to him, ignited what God would use to really inflame the Reformation, things that had already been brewing, but to, to bring that out into the open and into the light. What is, let me ask you this. What, why does the Reformation even matter anymore? Shouldn't we just move on and, and consider, just focus on Scripture and really just consider um, what the Lord has told us there? There are some professing believers today that believe that the Reformation was all based on misunderstanding. Certainly the liberal church believes that, and even, sadly, the Lutheran church in Germany believes that as well today. It's all based on misunderstandings. So some scholars would like you to think that the Reformation uh, doesn't really mean anything today. But it does. The Reformation has immense importance to us today. Look at what you're holding in your hands. At least what I'm assuming you're holding your hands, whether electronically or in paper. A Bible. The fact that you have a Bible in your hands in a language that you can understand is something that is a result of the Reformation. Yes, it's not in German, it's in English. So we're not talking about Wycliffe today. But Martin Luther helped to get the Bible in the language of the people. That was a major emphasis of the Reformation. The fact that we enjoyed congregational singing today is also a result of the Reformation. The apostles sang hymns, but somehow that was lost. 
So it was only the, the, the choir that sang. Others would just listen. And can you sit in your chair today can you, knowing that if you, today was your last day, if you leave here and you breathe your last, are you certain that you will go to heaven? That the Lord would accept you? And if you say yes, that's also a result of what God did through Martin Luther's life. All these things are the results of God's gift of the Reformation of the 16th century. So this morning, we're going to take, a, take you, us on a, a bit of a journey back into church history to see the work of God. And God's work in Luther brought about great blessings to the Lord's church, and Christians are still enjoying those benefits today. Well, let's look at God's work in Luther. And, and Luther's life can be characterized by certain crises. And, and many times these came at about five years apart. And so I really kind of following along how uh, R.C. Sproul uh, divides Luther's life up. So in a large part, it's, it's his outline. Now we're first going to look at God's work in Luther through a thunderstorm in 1505. God's work through a thunderstorm in 1505. Now, as I begin each section, I'm just going to give you some scriptures that I think characterize Luther's thinking during that time. Scriptures that he would have undoubtedly heard. Uh, remember, the scriptures were not something that people had at home, but he would have undoubtedly heard scriptures read. One of those is in Exodus 2018. Exodus 2018. And this is when the the people of Israel are before uh, the, the mountain of, of God and the, there's the flaming and the fire. And Exodus 20:18 just simply reads, all the people perceive the thunder and the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. Think about what, they're, what they saw, right? Just, just, just think about that. Try to put yourself in their shoes for just a minute. The lightning flashes, the thunder, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. Right? The holy God was manifesting himself through that smoking mountain, through the flashes of lightning, through the thunders, thunderbolts, and they were terrified. Secondly, Job 37, verses 1 to 13. Job 37, 1 to 13. Speaking of God's work and his creation and how he controls everything in the world. There we read that also with moisture, he loads the thick cloud. He disperses the cloud of his lightning. It changes direction, turning around by his guidance so that it may do whatever he commands it on the face of the inhabited earth. Whether for correction or for his world or for loving kindness, he causes it to happen. I don't know if Martin Luther had that verse memorized. But it certainly seems as that lightning bolt uh, confronted him that he knew that God had sent that lightning bolt to him. It was no accident. Now, according to historian Roland Baton, Luther was born in Eiselben, Germany, on November the 10th, 1483, to Hans and Margareta Luther. He was nine years um he was, um, this, keep in mind, this is a time of great uh, reformation, great change. Um, 
the world, the Renaissance was happening. Uh, boats were sailing all over the world. Uh, not, not in the same period of time, Columbus would discover the Americas, the New World. One historian noted that Luther came from the most religiously conservative element of the population, which was the peasants. The peasants. Yet the religion was sort of a blend of, of Christian mythology, what they had heard, taught, but also they mixed that with German paganism. And that's it's one of the characteristics of Catholicism wherever it goes is it it, it brings Catholicism, but then it blends that with whatever the the, the pagan religion is in that particular area. And you see that even, even in uh, our world today. And so that's sort of how Luther, his, his thoughts and his growing up. And the, and the pagans thought that the forests were inhabited and they were enchanted. Uh, uh, ponds, the demons resided within ponds and mountaintops. And so it's very uh, somewhat mis, uh, mystical, superstitious. That's the environment that Luther grew up in. Now Hans, Hans Luther, Luther's father, left farming. He didn't actually own any land, but he left the farming uh, industry to, be, to become uh, a miner. And he was a skilled at a worker and manager. And he was able to eventually own six foundries, which, which elevated the status of their family, but they were still within the realm of, of peasants. Right? But the money allowed him to pay for his son's education. He wanted his son, Martin, to be a prominent lawyer. And he had saved up enough money to pay for Luther's education. And not only did he want Luther to be a prominent lawyer so he could be a proud father, but he also wanted Luther to be a prominent lawyer so that he would be wealthy and would be able to take care of his parents in their old age. So that was his plans. But um, God had other plans. Now, what about Luther's schooling? Luther begins his schooling in Magdeburg, Germany, in 1497. So Luther's 14 years old. He completes his studies by May 1501. I think that's somewhat comparable to our high school, although it's hard, it's hard for me to, to determine that. Luther earned his Bachelor of Arts degree in 1502 when he was just 18 years old. Luther earned his Master of Arts degree in January 7, 1505. Luther is 21, but already distinguishing himself as a brilliant student in jurisprudence, the science of the law. To earn his degree, Luther would have to speak fluent Latin because that was the language of the university and the language used in the legal system, the language of theologians, physicians, and other professional people. Now keep in mind that that schooling was extremely rigorous. It would be considered abusive today. And I'm not arguing that we go back to that, but keep in mind that if they didn't learn their lessons, students were often beaten, right? So um, to the point where they would bleed, right? Either in the hand or other parts of their body. But Luther didn't learn his lessons for that reason. He enjoyed learning and actually wanted to, um, wanted to learn everything he could to be the best uh, lawyer he possibly could. And... After graduating with his Master of Arts degree on January 7th, he immediately began his doctoral work uh, in law studies at the University of Erfurt. And this, this background and understanding of law is very critical to how God was going to use Martin Luther. God's provident uh, and sovereign over all things. It is no accident that 
Luther's father wanted him to be a lawyer, that, that, that Luther actually took on this work of learning uh, the law. Upon graduating with his master's degree, his father actually gave him a copy of Roman law that he had. So he was a brilliant student of the law. And this background of, of the law and of justice played a heavy part in a big part in what God would do in his life as a monk. Now, what about this lightning bolt that I talked about? This is referred to Luther's lightning bolt crisis in July of 1505. So he, he didn't he wasn't in this studies long, but he was on the way back to Erfurt, having visited his parents when a storm came up very quickly. It was a terrible thunderstorm. And if he was just a few hours outside of Erfurt, lightning struck the ground near him and so close to him. And in fact, that he was thrown to the ground. He saw this as a message from God. He was absolutely terrified to say it. Uh, it's probably not putting it strongly enough. When he, when, this is when he cried out to St. Anne, help me, St. Anne, I will become a monk. Now, he, why did he cry out to St. Anne? Well, St. Anne, uh, the mother of Mary, was known as the patron saint of minors. And Luther had heard many household prayers to St. Anne. And remember, too, that the Catholic Church taught then, as it does now, that you can, as a, as a believer of God, in God, and follower of Christ, is you can pray to the saints. And so that's just what Luther was uh, brought up uh, believing, because he had, that's what he had been taught. Uh, this is a doctrine that is not found in the Scriptures. And, and by the way, this makes the saints omnipresent uh, and omniscient, which, which is really nonsense because only God is omniscient and omnipresent. Only God can hear your prayer. The saints can't. The saints in heaven can't hear your prayer and they have no, no power to answer. But again, this is what is what was taught at the Catholic Church and what continues to be taught. Now, why did he vow to become a monk? Why was that his first answer? He could have said, St. Anne, you know, help me. But he said, Help me, St. Anne, I will become a monk. He's doing a little bartering, isn't he? He's saying, if you save me, I'll, you do something for me, I'll do something for you. Right? That's essentially what he was doing. Why did he vow to become a monk? And th th here's why. Luther feared death. Luther feared death. And he feared hell. Listen to Roland Bayton explain Luther's reasoning. The man who was later to revolt against monasticism became a monk for exactly the same reason as thousands of others, namely in order to save his soul, that as a single, in a single lightning flash, he saw, in that single lightning flash, he saw the denouncement, the end result of the drama of existence. That is, he thought he was going to die. And if he died right then, he knew he would be going to hell. He continues his, there was the there was God, the all-terrible, Christ, the inexorable, and all the leering fens springing from their lurking places in the pond and wood that with sardonic chastenation might seize his shock of curly hair and bolt him into hell. Right? Remember, Luther had much superstitions about what were the devils in the woods and all these kind of things. So not only was he fearful uh, of the all-terrible God, but that the devils were also working to send him to hell as quickly as possible. 
So he cried out to be a monk in order to, because he thought it would save his life. And Baton Roland also, uh, Roland Baton also notes that Luther reported, uh, repeatedly asserted that, and I quote, that he believed himself to be summoned by a call from heaven to which he could not be disobedient. So Luther just didn't look at this, um, this, this, this vow as something just, just, um, whimsical, right? He saw that God sent that lightning bolt which could have easily killed him, but landed just far enough away just to awaken him to the fact that death is something to be feared. Certainly, if you're without Christ, with Christ, death is no longer an enemy. But for Luther, death was an enemy. He cried out to save his life. It took him just two weeks to arrange his affairs and decide which monastery to enter. Right? If we have made a vow to God, are we so diligent to pay it? Think about that. Just two weeks. He was in law school. Just two weeks to arrange the details, pick out which which monastery he would join. Would join. And he chose a strict one, the Reformed Congregation of the Augustinians. On July 17, 1505, Luther entered the Augustinian cloister at Erfurt to become a monk. So God redirected Luther's life significantly through that thunderbolt. In this next period of Luther's life, we move from the thunderbolt, that lightning bolt crisis, to his struggles as a monk, as we see another crisis of his that he has in Rome. We'll look at God's work of conviction through a visit to Rome. Now, Luther uh, visits Rome in 1510, but we have to talk about a few things before he gets there. The theme verses that, that, in my mind, fit this period of Luther's life are verses that, a statement that occurs in Exodus 34.7 and in Nahum 1.3. Exodus 34.7 and Nahum 1.3. And that is this. And the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. That phrase haunted Luther. And he had undoubtedly probably heard Psalm 130 read. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Luther knew what the scriptures tell us, that he was a sinner. And if he were to face God, he would be a sinner. He would not be righteous and would thereby thereby be cast into hell. And that haunted Luther. Because understand, Luther, Luther understood what it meant to fulfill the justice of the law. Like other people deaden their conscience by reducing the requirements of the law. Other people deaden their conscience by reducing the holiness of God. Some other people deaden their conscience by elevating their own personal goodness. But all these things were simply band-aids. For Luther, they did nothing to change his heart. Um, the first year of Martin's uh, life in the cloister were relatively quiet for Luther. He was allowed at the end of that year to take the vow of a monk. They have a year of probation to see if they really are going to be a monk. And at the end of that year, he took the vow of a monk. Martin was selected by his superior to become a priest, and this would lead him into another stormy season that began at his first mass, when he he would perform a rite 
by which God would appear in human form. And they're referring to the Mass, right? So uh, I will uh, use the, the Catholic terminology as Luther understood it, right? But keep in mind that's not in the Scriptures. Um, the terror that Luther felt at thinking he was in the presence of the Holy God can be heard in his words, and I quote him here. At these words, I was utterly stupefied and terror-stricken. I thought to myself, with what tongue shall I address such majesty, seeing that all men ought to tremble in the presence of even an earthly prince? Who am I that I should lift up mine eyes or raise my hands to the divine majesty? For I am dust and ashes and full of sin, and I am speaking to the living, eternal, and true God. As historian Baton Roland continues, uh, Roland Baton notes later, the problem of the alienation of man from God had been renewed in an altered form, not merely in the hour of death as it had before, but but daily at the altar the priest stood in the presence of the all high and all holy. How could man abide in God's presence unless he himself were holy? Luther set himself to the pursuit of holiness. Whatever good works a man might do to save himself, these Luther was resolved to perform. Think about the irony of God's providence. Not all monks become priests, but Luther was selected to become a priest. And in becoming a priest, he would have to offer Mass, and in offering Mass, he would perform the rite, whereby, as Catholics teach, the, the bread becomes the actual body of Christ, and the, the, the wine actually becomes the blood of Christ. Again, that's not scriptural, but that's what Catholicism teaches even today. And that terrified Luther. And isn't it ironic that God sent a one-time event that put him into the monastery and then he gave him a regular everyday event to bring constantly to Luther's mind the holiness of God. Right? Really ironic. Ironic. But for Luther, all such drastic methods of the monastery uh, gave no sense of inner tranquility. The purpose of his striving was to compensate for his sins, but he could never feel that the ledger was balanced. As he examined his own life, right, he always saw that his life was deficient. He could never get ahead. He could never have more good works than bad works. Of course, you know, God doesn't judge us that way, but but that's the the logic of Roman Catholicism, and that's how Luther thought. Luther tried to remember every single sin. He thought if you did not confess a sin, it was not forgiven. So you had to remember the sin to ask for forgiveness for it, to, to confess it in order to get forgiveness. And he was so afraid that he had forgotten some sin. Luther is noted to have regularly spent hours and hours and hours in the confessional, four and five and six hours wearing out the confessor. And, I, and nearly just telling, at times they would tell him, can you come back when you have a real sin? They, 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 they were tired of all his confessions he was giving. But, but Luther was driven because he knew that if he was not absolutely holy, he would not qualify for heaven. Right? That haunted him. And, and it's, not just, it's not just the big sins that Luther was concerned about. It was little ones. As, as several pastors noted um, 
when they're teaching through this. I mean, how much trouble could Luther get in into in a, in a monastery? Right? But he confessed his sins for hours. And yet this gave him no relief. For as soon as he left the confessional, he would think of something new that he had done wrong and need to go confess that. He found no relief. And yet um, his, his, those that taught him, his mentors, told him of another source of help, another source of, of what was supposed to be help, and that is in the merit of the saints. Now, the Roman Catholic doctrine, Roman Catholic doctrine teaches that those people who finally do get to heaven, who they call saints, were better than they needed to be for their own salvation, if you can fathom that. So keep in mind that, that, that you hear of Catholic saints, those are people who have simply made it to heaven. Anybody in heaven is a saint. Right? So the ones that they recognize as saints are recognized as being in heaven. Everybody else, that all the other Catholics are in purgatory. Right? Um, again, not a scriptural, something that's taught in scripture. But the teaching goes that those who are in heaven got there because of their, of their great good works and they had more than that they needed and they were willing to share. So each individual sin had to be accounted for, but good works could be pooled and shared. And here again, Baton provides a helpful description. These superfluous merits, that is abounding merits, of the righteous constitute a treasury which is transferable to those whose accounts are in arrears. The transfer is effected through the church and particularly through the Pope to whom as a successor of St. Peter have, have been committed the keys to bind and lose. Such a transfer of credit was called an indulgence. Precisely how much good it would do had not been def, uh, definitely defined. But the common folk were disposed to believe in the most extravagant claims. Keep in mind here, these claims are quite extravagant, but are rep fairly representative of what uh, what was taught. Um, so the indulgences were promised to those uh, faithful Catholics who would view the relics of the saints or making religious pilgrimages. Pope Leo X promised a reduction of purgatory by four thousand years for each relic of the saint of of the saints that were viewed in Hall, so a specific location on a specific day. It wasn't just uh, wide open. You had to go on that particular day in that particular place. 4,000 years in purgatory taken off. Now, Rome itself was the greatest storehouse of such relics in all the world. Um, uh, there was, just to give you an idea, they, this, is, these are, this is what's claimed. There was a single piece of Moses' burning bush. They had the chains of, of St. Paul. They had the entire bodies of St. Paul and St. Peter. And because that was such a great blessing and they wanted to, to wanted to be a blessing, share fairly to all the churches, they divided their bodies up. So some churches got the head, some churches got a foot. So, and it's pretty gross, but that actually did, did happen. So that, that Catholics in different churches could go and receive the indulgence uh, and not just be at one location. Uh, in Roman Catholic thinking, as Baton notes, no city on earth was so plentifully supplied with holy relics. No city on earth was so richly endowed with spiritual indulgences as holy Rome. Now, Luther 
was not in Rome, but Luther was selected to go conduct business for uh, his monastery in Rome. And, and Luther considered himself highly privileged uh, when he was selected to go to Rome in 1510. Now, this is not by accident. He, his superiors knew that he was haunted by his sins and by the, by the thought of coming before a holy God. And they thought that visiting Rome would help him. Right? They, right? Getting some of these indulgences would help him. So Luther went. Right? He and a companion from, uh, from Elfurt uh, walked there. Sort of a, a, a pilgrimage of sorts. When, when they arrived, disillusionments quickly set in for Luther. Once he got there, he hadn't been into a confessional in quite some time, so he went into the confessional as a first matter of order. And when he, as he was confessing his sins, because he was a diligent, meticulous priest himself, could tell that the priest to whom he was confessing sins was totally incompetent. He says the abysmal ignorance, frivolity, levity of the Italian priest stupefied him. They took their work um, not very seriously. They didn't follow Catholic doctrine and how they practiced some of their their rites and sacraments. And then there was open immorality of the Roman clergy. And this was appalling to Luther. They openly visited homes of prostitutes. It was well known within the city. And all this was tolerated. And yet these things didn't, didn't shake Luther to his core. It, they bothered him. But, but these were the actions of the disobedient. These are the actions of the unfaithful, not the actions of the faithful. What shook Luther's confidence was his visit to the stairs at the Lateran, Lateran, Lateran uh, Church, uh, which it was in Rome. Now, the Lateran Church is uh, supposed to have ch- uh, stairs in front of it that are the same stairs that, uh, that went up to Pilate's palace. So uh, Rome went to Jerusalem, got these stairs, moved them to Rome. That's the claim. And, and that Jesus, it, it's claimed that these are the very stairs that Jesus ascended. In fact, if they were authentic, it would be the stairs that Jesus climbed as he went to his judgment before Pilate. And popes had promised that he who crawled up on these stairs, hands and knees, repeating a prayer for on each one, could thereby release a soul from purgatory. Now, you're not talking about thousands of years off of purgatory or tens of thousands of years or hundreds of thousands of years or even a million years off of purgatory. You're talking instant release from purgatory. So when uh, R.C. Sproul visited these stairs a number of years ago, they're still crowded with pilgrims. So don't think that this teaching has changed all that much in 500 years. Now, when Luther got there, he was climbing Pilate's stairs on hands and knees, repeating a prayer for each and each one and kissing each step for good measure in the hope of delivering the soul from purgatory. Luther regretted that his own father and mother were not yet dead and in purgatory so that he might confer on them so signal a favor in order to receive something from, you know, release, be released from purgatory. He had to be in purgatory where his parents weren't dead. They weren't in purgatory. So he couldn't release them. 
Instead, he resolved to release Grandpa Hine. The stairs were climbed, the prayers were repeated, repeated, the steps were kissed, and at the top he stood up and looked around at all that was going on around him. And he said, Who knows whether it is so? Who knows whether it is so? You see, it was simply the words of the Pope, not the Scriptures. And that's what plagued Luther with doubt. Now we move from Luther's crisis in Rome to his crisis. It's called the Tower Crisis in studying the Scriptures. The, as he was studying, yeah, and he had a crisis with the Scriptures he was asked to teach. So uh, Luther moved from Erfurt, where he was in the monastery, then to Wittenberg. And how did he get to Wittenberg? Well, enter um, Frederick the Wise. Now, Frederick the Wise is known as one of the key players of the Reformation, but he never meant to be. Frederick the Wise meant to build up the city of, of Wittenberg. It was a small little village. It was a, it was a, Wittenberg means white hill. It was like a white sandy hill that it was it was built on. It was really nothing. It was a little village of 2,000. But Frederick the Wise wanted to build this up to be the Rome of Germany. He wanted to create a university that was second to none. He wanted to have a, a, a place for, for relics that was second only to Rome. And so he worked very diligently buying relics, receiving relics. And he was a very powerful person. He was a prince. And so that the Pope would grant him certain indulgence power with these relics. And so he was well on his way to creating this. But a, but a key was to have some really good scholars. Can't have a great uh, university without really smart professors. And this is where Luther comes in. So Luther, along with others, was hired from Erfurt and moved to Wittenberg to, be, to start teaching there. And, and really, I think the uh, theme verse that fits this period of Luther's life is, is Psalm 36, 9. Psalm 36, 9. For with you is the fountain of life in your light. We see light. In your light, we see light. It's interesting that Luther actually preached through Psalms. I don't know how many of them he got through before he began to preach through Romans and then moved to Galatians. And then the the verse that you probably anticipate me going to, the other key verse is in Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. Romans 1, verses 16 and 17, where Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to, for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, But the righteous man shall live by faith. Now, as evangelicals, as Protestants, uh, taking the word of God literally, we, we read those words with great joy. But Luther every, time the Luther, every time Luther ran across that phrase, the righteousness of God, it terrified him. When Luther was, Luther was called to be the professor of Bible exposition at Wittenberg, and Luther was a master linguist. Remember, I told you he learned, mastered Latin, but he knew far more than just Latin. He was a master linguist and a diligent stu student of the scriptures. Keep in mind that it wasn't at the time, uh, nor is it now, the, the, a job of a priest to really study the scriptures. They study the scriptures a little bit. They study church dogma and 
and church teachings. That's the primary bulk of what they learn in seminary even today. They don't primarily learn scriptures. But Luther was asked to, to, to go by his mentor, who is actually somewhat of a mystic, a Catholic mystic. But ironically, he was, he was given this position of a professor of Bible exposition at the university. So Luther began to teach the scriptures. Now, the usual method of Bible study at that time studied the scriptures using a, full, a fourfold method of interpretation. They were told to look at the literal sense. Then they were told to look at the ethnical sense. They were told to look at the mystical sense. And then they were told to look for the allegorical sense. And you can imagine that when you look at all the look at a passage of scripture from all these four different angles, you could come out with a lot of nonsense. And, that, and that's indeed what happened. And, and that is the result why there is so much bad doctrine in the Roman Catholic Church even today. This method of interpretation leads to a very subjective interpretation, and it leads to speculations about scripture that are only limited by the scholar's imagination. I mean, when you start looking at the allegorical method, even, even just that one alone, you, you, there's no end to, to what a, a, someone can create in the imagination that, that can't be objectively proven or shown. Now, Luther said that under the system of interpretation, the Bible became a wax nose. That's the phrase that he talked about. He said the Bible becomes a wax nose. You can simply bend it whichever way the, the speaker wants to bend it. They could twist, anyone could twist and distort the scripture according to their own desires. So this method could be of interpretation could be used to justify whatever theory the scholar was wanting to teach. Well, Luther, by God's grace, came under the conviction that the only legitimate method of interpreting the scriptures was by interpreting them literally. The literal method of, of interpretation isn't, isn't like a wooden interpretation. It's not saying you, you interpret every single passage of Scripture as if it's literally true. Now, the literal method of interpretation recognizes all genres of speech, poetry, history, prophecy, figures of speech, as R.C. Sproul describes it. You interpret Scripture according to how it was written. If it's historical narrative, you interpret it according to the rules of a historical narrative. If it's poetry, you interpret according to the rule of poetry. If prophecy, according to the rules of prophecy. So Sproul adds that Luther built a hedge around all attempts to have a mythical, spiritualized interpretation of the Word of God. He wouldn't stand for it. He wanted to look for the plain sense and the plain meaning of Scripture that we have, uh, the understanding that we have in the Word of God. He wanted to understand the word of God as it was originally written and given. If God is a communicator, he can be understood. Luther wanted to understand what God was saying. And Luther's view on, on proper biblical interpretation kept developing in the years that he was studying and teaching the scriptures as a professor of Bible exposition. Again, this is no accident. Not many priests developed this. And, and it's just a, a, an amazing gift of God that he had given Luther and, and uh, to providentially guide Luther to this understanding of how to interpret the scriptures. Luther began expositing the Psalms on August 16th, 1513. In April 1515, 15, he begins Romans. Galatians, he would begin later in October of 1516. So he spent um, a year and a half going through Romans. But as Sproul explains, it didn't take... It didn't take Luther long to have to run into his crisis point. He 
ran into his crisis at Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. And Sproul explains that this spoke of that this spoke that spoke of the topic. This verse spoke of the topic or the subject that terrified Luther more than any other subject, namely the righteousness of God. This passage would later bring sweet refreshment to Luther's soul. Yet the start of his studies brought him face to face with a topic that horrified him. Despite, despite all of his hard work in the monastery, his rigorous asceticism, his pilgrimages, his attempts to thoroughly confess all his sins, and the use of indulgences, Luther knew that he could never measure up to the righteousness that God demands. Luther knew that if God judged him by God's standards of righteousness, he would perish. Luther tried every human and Roman Catholic means to satisfy the demands of God's justice and God's righteousness. Yet he knew these had provided no relief to his conscience. Luther understood the chasm that separated him from God. And, and he understood the high demand of the righteousness of God. As Sproul as notes, Luther saw no way to bridge that gap. But as he studied Romans 1, verses 16 and 17, using the literal, literal method of interpretation that he had been developing, Luther saw something that he had never seen before. He saw meaning in the text that he had not understood before. He saw that this passage contained a quote from Habakkuk, and that quote's actually quoted three times in the New Testament, taught of a righteousness that is revealed from faith to faith, and that this righteousness, that the righteous one shall live by faith. He probed to, to properly understand this text. As Sproul explains, the lights came on for Luther. He began to understand that what Paul was speaking of here was a righteousness that God in his grace was making available to those who would receive it passively, not to those who would achieve it actively. But that, but that would receive it by faith and that which a person could be reconciled to a holy and righteous God. Some of Luther's prior confusion about Romans 1.17 was caused by the fact that he often read the scripture, first read the scriptures in Latin. Remember, the scriptures weren't in the German language. So the first time that he would actually read the scriptures himself or could read them would be when he, after he knew Latin. And the Latin word that's used in Latin Vulgate and at this time in church history carried a slightly different meaning. The, the word justification in Latin carried a slightly different meaning than the word in Greek, than the word Paul used. The, the, the Latin term justificare came from the Roman judicial system made up of two words, justice, meaning justice or righteousness, and ficare, which is a verb that means to make. Putting it together, the word means to make righteous and that's how luther had previously understood this that 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 this idea that that one had to be made righteous before he could be righteous with god and that god would work uh, to judge people based on his own standard of righteousness thus those who studied the latin vulgate understood the doctrine of justification as that which happens when god makes unrighteous people righteous not not righteous in, in a sense of a judicial verdict like we would understand the Greek, but in the sense of, of that God would not um, declare someone righteous or see someone as righteous or acknowledge them as righteous until they actually were. Not, not just in name, but in practice too. And that, that's what was taught. And that's why even today the, the Pope himself has no confidence that he'll go directly to heaven. 
He understands that. So, and it's not just this pope, but any pope, right? Have no assurance when they die, they'll go directly to heaven because they understand that there's still sin in them that has to be worked out of them before they can go to heaven. And that's why they came up with this idea of purgatory, a place of where even though you're not perfect, you can be made perfect, right? Again, it's an unscriptural idea, but that's where how it fits in in their thinking. And, and this was Luther's dilemma, this understanding that, that he had to be perfectly righteous in order to, to enter heaven. He had been the diligent son of the Roman Catholic Church. He had tried every means known and, and every sacrament, but was no closer to actually becoming righteous than he was at the start. He saw his own faults. Luther is noted as saying that if anyone could have been saved by monkery, it would be him. For he passionately and diligently pursued the means by which the Church of Rome taught that one could be made righteous. But the Greek word was different. The Greek word, diakosune, carries a different meaning. It means to regard as righteous or count as righteous. Not make righteous, but count as righteous. It's not an action making one righteous, but a judicial action declaring one to be righteous. And this meaning was confirmed in Luther's mind by Augustine's essay on the, on the letter and the spirit. That's the title of the essay, The Letter and the Spirit, in which Augustine noted that Paul was talking about a righteousness that God makes available to people by faith. And this was Luther's awakening. He realized that the righteousness by which he will be saved is not his, but that which God provides. This is what Luther called an alien righteousness. And a righteousness that is foreign to us, that is outside of us. A righteousness, namely, that is the righteousness of Christ. Luther was at that moment born again. Listen to his words. He says, I greatly longed to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the justice of God. Because I took it to mean that justice whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. My situation was that although an impeccable monk I stood before God as a sinner, troubled in conscience, and I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. Therefore, I did not love a just, I did not love a just, angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. Yet I clung to dear Paul and had a great yearning to know what he meant. Now, keep in mind the 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 idea often taught, either directly or indirectly, is that God is this ferocious magnificent God who punishes evil. It's the God who who strikes people dead. They didn't look at God as the compassion of God. That's why they went uh, ultimately, even they saw even Jesus' way a bit, and that's why they would often go to the saints. They saw mercy in the saints. They didn't see God as a God of mercy. Yet, listen to, to Luther's words. He said, night and day, I pondered, the scriptures until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by his faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. Thereupon, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through the open doors in paradise. The whole of scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate now it became to me inexpressibly sweet and great love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. 
And notice how Luther's view of the of the gospel changed, but it's also his view of God changed. The all-terrible, Luther would note that the all-terrible is also the all-merciful. That wrath and love um, combine upon the cross. They meet at the cross. The wrath of God and the love of God are brought together on the cross of Christ. Sproul rightly concludes that there's no other way to understand Luther's tenacity, Luther's unwillingness to compromise on the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Apart from this life-changing, life-changing experience, this life-changing born-again experience, when for the first time of his life he understood the gospel and what it meant, meant to be redeemed by someone else's righteousness. Think about that. His whole life plagued, his conscience plagued, but at that moment released, much like Bunyan was right? Bunyan's character as he as he as he goes through and he has this great weight on his back. When that weight is taken off, he's freed from the burden of sin. What 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 a wonderful crisis this was for Luther. This brought another crisis into his life. One we'll look at here, and that is the work, God's work in Luther through the indulgence controversy. One that is uh, a bit. Well, quite quite a bit famous for it leads to the day that we're celebrating today. The theme verses that fit into this periods of life, I would say, are Romans 3. And I just turn you there a minute. Romans 3, it's a longer passage, so I didn't put it in my notes. Romans 3, verses 20 to 26. Romans 3. But by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now let your eyes go down to chapter 4, verse 5. But to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Luther as he taught and as he exposited Romans, those scriptures came to have great weight in Luther's life, great conviction. And keep in mind, Luther served not only as a scholar, but also as a parish priest in, in, in the village. And thus he was responsible for the spiritual welfare of the flock. This flock was obtaining indulgences, some through, uh, as I mentioned, uh, Frederick the Wise. Others through another character we'll talk about in a minute that began to sell indulgences in a, in, a, um, in a crass way. I'll remind you that Frederick the Wise had amassed this huge collection of relics trying to make Wittenberg the, the Rome of Germany. And it is noted that with all of the relics, um, if you were to view all of the, the relics that were there, that it amounted to and, and, and added up the days of purgatory that were reduced. It would add up to 1,902,202 years, 270 days. 
That's how much you could remove off of your stay in purgatory by viewing those relics. So needless to say, many people did that. But it was only you could only get that indulgence if you visited on a certain day. It wasn't open all the time. You could see it all the time, but the indulgence wasn't valid. It was only certain days. And guess what day that was designated to be? All Saints Day, November 1st. All Saints Day. That's significant. And and so that's the day we call All Saints Day. That's the, the day recognized to, to um, in Catholic uh, calendar to uh, really pray to the saints and, and acknowledge what, they have done and and this treasury of merit that they are supplying again according to catholic doctrine now as luther exposited the bible and this basically these indulgences people gain indulgences that began to wear on luther's mind began to weigh heavy on him remember he's a professor what do professors do they teach right so three times during his sermons in the year 1516, Luther spoke critically of these indulgences. The third of these occasions was Halloween, October 31st, the eve of All Saints Day. Luther wasn't yet totally against them, but he saw them as dangerous and likely to induce complacency in the faithful. Enter Tetzel. Enter Tetzel. Well, I don't have time to set the entire background, but... But to say it that the Pope was wanting to build St. Peter and Paul's Basilica. He needed money. And in order to uh, garnish more money, he authorized the sale of more indulgences. He authorized people to, to sell for money indulgences. No longer would they just be able to see the relics. He authorized the you could give them money and you would get an indulgence. Now, it was supposed to be given, that money was supposed to be given with contrition. Right, according to the Catholic dogma, but um, the prince and uh, Prince Albert, in, in who ruled that area, um, want, need, also needed money because he was buying certain privileges from the Pope. I think a bishopric from the Pope, and that cost him many golden ducats, which he did not have, and so he needed to raise money. So he author, authorized Tetzel, a Dominican monk with the task of distributing the indulgences for a fee. Now, now he was he did require them to, um, his instructions were that there would need to be some contrition given or demonstrated or displayed with the money, but Tetzel did not apply it that way. He was a fantastic marketer, a marketing specialist. He was focused on raising as much money as possible, and he would certainly do that well. He would preach a sermon about can't you hear the screams of your loved ones in purgatory as they burn and he would have sermons like that and then and then um he would he would say this little jingle as soon as the coin in the coffer rings a soul from purgatory springs and he would go from village to village to village raising money this way. Now, he wasn't allowed, because of the, the politics at the time, he wasn't allowed to sell indulgences in the region where uh, Frederick the Wise operated. And so he didn't come in directly into Wittenberg or that area. But, but when you have something like this going on, the villagers don't stay in their village. They hear about something and some way to take some time off purgatory. They want in on that. And so Luther began to hear that, and that these abuses of Tetzel incensed Luther. 
And this led directly to, the, to Luther's 95 theses. Again, a note from, uh, from um, historian Baton that, that he notes that Tetzel's hawking of indulgences was just too much for Luther. In 1517, again, on the eve of All Saints' Day, when Frederick the Wise would offer his indulgences, Luther spoke this time not by teaching a class, but he spoke in writing by posting in accord with the current practice on the door of the castle church in Wittenberg a printed placard in the Latin language consisting of 95 theses for debate. So these theses revolved around three main points. First, Luther's objection to spending money on building St. Peter's and Paul's Basilica in Rome. He thought that that was a waste of money, that that money could be better spent helping the poor. Secondly, he uh, the, the, the theses revolved around a denial of the powers of the Pope over purgatory. He dared to challenge the Pope's powers over purgatory. And thirdly, a consideration of the welfare of the sinner. And that, in, in other words, he was very concerned that people discover what he discovered in the scriptures. And yet Luther didn't set out to start a reformation. He wanted a discussion. He wanted the scholars to come together and open up the scriptures and discuss them. He didn't want to have Catholic doctrine brought in. He didn't want the, the ruling of councils brought in. He just wanted to discuss the scriptures. So he posted these very famously. You've seen pictures. You've seen the, the movie of Luther. He, he nails these to the, to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg. And guess who showed up? Which scholars showed up to debate him? No one. No one. Luther didn't get his debate. But some students who could read Latin understood the significance of what Luther was saying publicly. Without Luther's permission, they translated those theses into the German language, published them, and thanks to Gutenberg's printing press, made copies widely available throughout Germany within weeks. Prince Albert, the Pope, uh, could not ignore these things. And so these the 95 theses lead us directly to what we would know as the Diet of Worms, one of Luther's famous stand that really just kicked the gasoline onto the fire. Right? So that's one of, the, one of the ways that I want to blow over. One of, the way, one of the reasons we mark today as Reformation Day is because on October 31st, 504 years ago, Luther dared uh, to, to call people to debate about the scriptures. Right? God used it in other ways. Now, Luther's work, I look at God's work in Luther as a diet of worms in the few minutes we have, we have left. And, and here, I'd like, just like you to consider this, this verse as being fitting for Luther's life. Again, he was an expositor of the Psalms. So no doubt, uh, he had Psalm 18.2 in his mind. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock and whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I have to think that was in his thinking when he wrote the, the hymn that we sung, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Well, I need to fast forward quite a bit in time. There were several debates. Well, he wanted debates, but he never really got a debate. He just got trials. And the same was, was true here. Now, you, you hear the phrase diet of worms. It's not about food and it's not about the animal worms. Okay, worms is a city and diet is the is the term for a trial. This was to be a trial. And, and there was great. Uh, there are a lot of people 
who were very fearful for Luther's life, thought he shouldn't go, thought it was a trap. Right? But the, the emperor, uh, the Roman holy emperor, which is neither holy nor Roman, um, promised him safe passage to Worms. Promised him safe passage there and back. Right? So Luther went. And ultimately, it was Frederick the Wise and, and the power that God had given Frederick the Wise, the influence, who protected Luther. Because otherwise, Luther would have, been, would have been captured. He would have been kidnapped and taken to Rome, tried in Rome, and, and killed in Rome. But it, it is Frederick the Wise's power that really kept Luther from being drugged to Rome. And so there was this um, trial in the city of Worms, which is in Germany. Now, Luther, when he got there, when on his way there, the, the peasants, because he was working, he, he, they saw him as working for them. The peasants lined the, the roads leading up to Worms in order to greet and encourage Luther. As Luther was brought into the room, he wasn't given the debate that he wanted. Luther was brought before um, the emperor himself and Catholic teachers and um, theologians. And he was brought before a table that had a bunch of books on it. And they were his books, his writings. And Luther was asked if these works were his writings. And to this, Luther said plainly, yes. The prosecutor, Eck, demanded that Luther speak plainly without horns in his reply, that is, without any debate. He says, we don't want any debate here. I want a simple yes or no. Simple yes or no. Will you or will you not recant of these teachings? And, and Luther said, well, well, which teachings? Because all his teachings were there. And, and he said they were all very different. And that's where Eck really got kind of upset. And he, he just says, Plain, speak plainly, yes or no. He was, Eck was demanding a simple recantation of all of, of Luther wrote. Now, keep in mind, all that I've told you up to this point, Luther understands that he was haunted until he understood that the gospel is by, the salvation is by faith alone. Justification is by faith alone. The righteousness of God is by faith alone. He knew he could not recant of that. He might be wrong in some areas, but he could not recant of that. Now, you might think at this point, Luther stands up and says, here I stand. No, that's not actually what happens. Luther gives an answer to Eck that's inaudible. And so Eck asked him to repeat himself. And when he replies, he says, can I have 24, 24 hours to think it over? Can I have 24 hours to think it over? Luther blinked. He lacked resolve. He had doubt. Even though he was convicted of, of those truths, he was accused of being the only one that was teaching these things. Are you the only one is right? Is one of the arguments that was used against him. This caused him to doubt. So he was given that time. He's actually given a bit more than 24 hours because things were running late. The next day, as a trial, um, and, and keep in mind, Luther didn't go back to his room to sleep. He was in prayer all night, tormented by his situation. But God gave him resolve. God became that strong tower, that mighty fortress for Luther. So Luther was brought back into the hall, actually a different hall, bigger hall. But again, it was so full. Tension was so high. There was, there was no free space. People were all crowded in around one another as, as much as possible. And Luther was asked to recant. 
to which he said this, Unless I am convinced by sacred scripture or by evident reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is held captive by the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. And it is noted by uh, Roland Baton that the earliest printed version added the words, Here I stand, I cannot do otherwise. The words, though not recorded on the spot, may nevertheless be genuine because the listeners at the moment may have been too moved to write. So some scholars put a lot of doubt on whether, whether, uh, whether Luther actually said um, those, those last words, um, here I stand, I cannot do otherwise. But he, he said they could have been very much genuine. You think of the, the chaos that would have erupted at the end of those words and, and all the, uh, this, the, the chorus of those that were shouting him down and those who were shouting in encouragement all at the same time. Luther walked out, went back to his lodging, and prepared to leave Worms on the emperor's promise of a safe passage. So, you know, there were those who were plotting to take Luther's life, uh, but the emperor himself couldn't take Luther's life, couldn't call him to be arrested because he had given his word to Luther. So there was a plot formed to kidnap Luther and kill him, and they formed that those that did that formed themselves up down the road. But Frederick the Wise, God is working in his life too. Though he never renounced Catholicism, Frederick the Wise did not sign the emperor's edict to have Luther arrested. And although Frederick couldn't oppose the emperor directly, Frederick had some of his own maneuvers up his sleeve. He had uh, knights that worked for him as well. And dressed as robbers, they too set themselves up for an ambush of Luther. And they ambushed him and kidnapped him, took him deep into the forest and brought him to a remote castle, the Wartburg Castle, where Luther would begin working to translate the Bible into German. And Luther became a knight. And he pretended to be a knight, took a knight's name for over a year in order to hide himself as, as no one knew. Not even uh, Frederick the Wise's uh, brother knew what was going on. So it was an absolute secrecy because there were so many threats out to kill Luther. And so you just see how, the, how God worked in, in really marvelous ways and providential ways and supernatural ways to, to, to get the word of God into the language of the people. And when the word of God was in the language of the common people, the Reformation became unstoppable. And the rest is history. The church, the Catholic church, would, would try to counter the Reformation, but it would not succeed, not in all areas, and certainly not in history. And It's just amazing that how God worked from a thunderbolt of lightning to, to bring Luther to the place where he was ready to make a courageous stand before the greatest powers on earth at the time. It's a testimony to God, not to Luther. You know, we're not here celebrating Luther. I'm thankful for Luther. I'm thankful that he was obedient to the word of God. I'm thankful that he desired to read the word of God and study the word of God diligently. But he was not a perfect man. 
If you read enough of Luther, you're going to see many faults. Luther did not was not fully reformed. There were certain areas of his life that were reformed according to the scriptures, but not all areas of his life. Later in his life, he had a great hatred of the Jews because he saw them as crucifying the Christ. So there's much about, about uh, Luther's life that are not commendable. But there's much about him that we are thankful for because it's what God did through him. I mean, just think about that. Think about where you stand today. Are you like Luther in his early years who was haunted by the knowledge of the depth of your sin? You know, Catholics do that beforehand. Sometimes evangelicals do that on the other side. You know, you look at your your pattern of your life and you say, you try to you try to measure do I have more good things happening i don't i don't know i don't i don't know if i'm saved but when they do that they're refor- they're going back to kind of like being like the catholics not so much different than the catholics because ultimately where does our confidence lie it's not in that we've done more good than bad it's what in god in christ in christ alone now, that's what we have to come back to. It's, it's never, you know, the pattern of our lives helps us know whether God is at work in our lives. And, and if God changes and transforms you internally, you know, so there's that internal testimony of the Holy Spirit that, that helps you know you're saved. And, and the works of your life, if you look at the pattern of your life, you see that the pattern is that of godliness. Those things help in assurance, but ultimately it's, it's not about have you done more good deeds, you know, or studying Titus. And it's a, it's a heavy emphasis on good deeds. It's, it's not about, have you done enough good deeds today to be accepted into heaven? It's never that. It's always about the righteousness from God, which is through faith. And if you trust him, if you believe in Christ and call out to him, He will save because he is merciful and loving and he longs for people to trust him and to be saved. So trust him. If you haven't already done so, trust him. He will save you. And for those of us who have trusted in Christ, let us us not take confidence in our ability to walk the Christian life. You know, I'll just quote R.C. Sproul one, one more time. He said, there's not a single day of my life Not a single hour of my life that I've kept the first commandment to love my God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. We never will get there on our own. It's in Christ and in Christ alone that we are saved. It's in Christ and Christ alone that that we can have any confidence of being saved. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And until the day that we see our Christ and our imperfections are made to be perfect like our Lord, may we continuously be reforming, or put it in the language of Romans 12, be conformed by the renewing of our minds. We are called to be constantly being conformed. Let's pray. That is, we're constantly being transformed by the mind, not conformed. Conformed by the image of Christ. Our Lord and our God, we, we just thank you that in your mercy, your abundant mercy, your abundant grace, according to the great love with which you set upon us, not for anything of ourselves, but for your 
your name alone and for our good. You offered us and offer any today salvation. You offer us righteousness, not anything we can obtain on our own, but a foreign righteousness, an alien righteousness, that of Christ. The only righteousness that will pass the judgment of God. Oh God, help us Lord, just to worship you, to, to rejoice in what you have done and giving us this great gift. And if there are any here this morning who don't know you, they, they don't know for sure where they would end up if they were to die today. Lord, work in their lives, open their eyes to Romans and, and the, the many passages that speak of your gift of righteousness through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, faith alone in Christ alone. Oh God, help us, we pray, to proclaim this great and marvelous message and apply these truths to our lives for your glory. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information, a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.